Hey man, have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? You got some information, thoughts, or views that you want the world to hear? When I was trying to get this podcast off the ground, I had a lot of questions. How do I record an episode? How do I get my show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all the other places people like to listen? Man, the big question though was how do I make money from my podcast? The answer to every one of those questions is really simple. Anchor. Anchor is a one-stop shop for recording, hosting, and distributing your podcast. So best of all, it's 100% free and ridiculously easy to use. And now Anchor can match you with a great sponsors too, so you can get paid to podcast. One of the benefits that I really love about doing my podcast with Anchor is the ability to get my podcast on multiple platforms with the click of a button. So if you've always wanted to start a podcast and make money doing it, go to anchor.fm backward slash start. Go to anchor.fm slash start. One more time for the people in the back. Go to anchor.fm slash start to join me in a diverse community of podcasters already using anchor that's anchor.fm slash start i can't wait to hear your podcast till next time what's good family it is your boy elgin bailey A.K.A. Big L, A.K.A. Mr. Catch-22, A.K.A. Bishop Heavyset Voice. You are joining us for episode number 11 of the Page Turners podcast. Man, I continue to be blown away by the support, man, and I can't do anything more at the moment than to frankly say, Thank you to everybody who supports this podcast, man. Uh, I'm so excited. Uh, Really digging into the, you know, the the current book study. I've already picked out the next book, man, that I'm I'm excited about. I'm loving the format. Uh, Still doing some tinkering as far as time-wise. I'm looking probably to, man, probably have... um, a new episode at least three times a week. The way my schedule is going now, uh, I'm able to do it Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays. Uh, but I won't commit to those particular days. What I will commit to, though, is making sure that I have fresh and new content for all you folks up at least three times a week. Uh, just trying to really make sure, man, that I stay consistent with that. Uh, you guys have told me how excited you guys are about it. Uh, you love the, the, the 30, the third, I mean, the 30, the 45 minutes of content It's perfect for your schedules. It, it gives you enough to, to, to chew on, to think over. Uh, and I'm excited. Uh, 
as I continue to do some housekeeping before we dig into the actual book study, it's a couple of things I want to address, man. I know that this topic uh, in this book can be deemed and viewed by many as radical, uh, as controversial. I understand the statue of the late great Dr. James Cone, what he meant and how he was viewed by many in quote-unquote evangelicalism. I understand it. Uh, I'm not looking to defend Dr. James Cone. I think his work stands up enough to any uh, criticism and critique. He has plenty. His body of work speaks volumes. And most folks who do criticize him, who do have a negative view of black liberation theology, have never studied the theology. They've never read his work. Uh, they've never listened to any of his speeches, anything. They've never gone beyond uh, Dr. James Cone and listening to other black liberation theologians. So I understand it's difficult, but I think this book right here is crucial uh, for black Christians today uh, who are trying to understand where they are in light of all that white supremacy is doing globally. I also think it's important for uh, non-Christians or non-black people who, uh, or specifically, I'm sorry, non-Christian black folks who are sick and tired of, uh, of the Christian faith have a ton of issues with the Christian faith, feel all these negative uh, vibes and have all this negative quote-unquote energy, one of those new age type of words. Shout out to the homie Rob Thornton. Uh, but just that type of, those type of people who are constantly uh, berating, challenging, criticizing black Christians and specifically the black church for what they are and are not doing. This right here, this book, I believe, gives some context to the, the, the confusion, to the frustration uh, that many black Christians feel within the faith in regards to their relationship with the faith and with white supremacy. So with all that said, man, there's, there's one more thing that I want to do as far as housekeeping. Some of you guys have asked me already different ways of supporting the Page Turners uh, and what we're doing. The Page Turners podcast is one aspect of the Page Turners. The other aspect of the Page Turners is the actual on the ground Page Turners book club. It's a young African-American male book club, uh, ages 9 through 15, where we do similar things, where we, we pick a book, and for 90 days, we address a particular book, we walk through it, we chop it up, we, we figure out how it applies to them as, as black males, as, as black people, uh, and unpack truths out of different books, man. Currently, we're doing uh, The Invisible Man. But I say all that to say that people have asked different ways uh, on how they can support what we're doing at the Page Turners. 
There's several ways. One of the big ways is word of mouth. Man, letting people know that you you enjoy the podcast, what's going on on the podcast. Share, share, share. Word of mouth is huge. We want to attract more listeners to get more people to come and participate into what we're doing, man. You can find this podcast on a multitude of different platforms. Uh, you can find it on iTunes, Spotify, Google, uh, all across these different platforms. Or you can come listen to it from the actual Anchor host site. Uh, it would be anchor.fm uh, forward slash page turners. Uh, but here's what you can do, man. Another way that you can support because people have been asking. To those of you who are already supporting the show uh, in other ways, I thank you. But there's another way you can actually have a monthly subscription, which means you can set up so each month you would pay the Page Turners podcast. You would donate funds. You can donate funds in any amount of money, I believe, uh, that you choose to. Uh, that money is going to go to new equipment, new recording equipment. It's going to go to uh, on-the-ground libraries. Uh, you know those little libraries, those little wooden joints that you see on a lot of corners, we're looking to put two or three of those up in our community and to keep them fully stocked with different books. Uh, that those finances would also go to buying new books for future podcasts. That's one of the ways that you can actually support what we're doing here at the Page Turns Podcast. Uh, and again, I thank you if no one was to ever contribute or be a monthly subscriber. Best believe your boy is still going to be on the air and have feet and boots on the ground putting in work uh, to make this this podcast and addressing literacy, illiteracy within the Black Collective, man, uh, particularly amongst black male youth. So now that I got all that housekeeping out of the way, man, I thank you guys again. Join me right now as we continue reading in our current book study, Black Theology and Black Power by the late, great Dr. James H. Cone. We are still in chapter two. The title of chapter two is The Gospel of Jesus. Black People and Black Power. This particular section is called Christian Love and Black Power. And the text reads as follows. To suggest that black power is doing God's work in history by righting the wrongs done against his people's will, of course provoke the response that black power is a contradiction of Christian love. Critics will say, even if black power is not hate, but as you say, self-determination by whatever means necessary, violence if need be. How can this be reconciled with the life and message of Jesus? Is not this a radical denial of his demand of love in which the power of God is expressed in weakness and humiliation? Now, family, remember, this book was written in 1969, man, at the height of the black power movement. 
But that same logic, you can take black power out of this particular passage and replace it with Black Lives Matter. Now, I'm not talking about the organization. I'm talking about the meaning behind the hashtag. Anytime that you tend to see black folks talking and screaming Black Lives Matter, you will always see white Christians specifically, but not exclusively, specifically talking about how the Black Lives Matter hashtag and the meaning behind that hashtag contradicts Christian love. That is anti-Christian love because it's preaching separatism. It's preaching exclusivity. But so the critics are saying the same thing about the Black Power Movement that they're still saying now about the meaning behind the Black Lives Matter hashtag. Not the organization, but the hashtag. And the text continues. These difficult questions should not be evaded since many black power advocates shun Christianity and the language of love. Nor do we adequately adequately meet these questions by suggesting that Christianity, with its emphasis on love, is rejected because it is the oppressor's religion. Though this is undoubtedly true, and even more specifically, critics will force us with questions. Is it true that black power emerged because blacks became disenchanted with Martin Luther King's emphasis on Jesus, the man to love the enemy? Martin King, says one black power advocate, was trying to get us to love white folks because we love before we learn to love ourselves. And that ain't no good. And another defines the problem in this manner. Too much love, too much love. Nothing kills a nigger like too much love. While most black power advocates do not prescribe hatred, only a small minority, few, it must be admitted, would suggest love as the black man's appropriate response to white oppression. Most seem to feel like Martin X, Malcolm X. It's not possible to love a man whose chief purpose in life is to humiliate you and still be what is considered a normal human being. Therefore, instead of loving or hating the white man, it is best to ignore him. The white man no longer exists, writes one advocate. He is not to be lived with. He is not to be destroyed. He is simply to be ignored. Even a sympathetic admirer like Vincent Harding wonders whether black power is actually participating in the same game of dehumanization which he ascribes to white power. He pointedly asks, what shall be said of a love that is willed towards some men and not towards others? Is this goal in any way related to the deadly disease that has afflicted so much of American life for so many generations? I certainly have no desire to make Christians out of those who see no relationship between their understanding of truth and Jesus Christ. It is not my thesis that all black power advocates are Christians or even wish to be so. Nor is it my purpose to twist their language or to make an alien interpretation of it. My concern is rather to show that the goal and message of black power as defined in chapter one and articulated by many of its advocates is consistent with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Indeed, I have even suggested that if Christ is present among the oppressed as he promised, he must be working through the activity of black power. This alone is my thesis. 
How then is it possible to reconcile black power and its emphasis on emancipation at all costs with Christ's message of love? In an attempt to answer that question, we must remember that it is most difficult to make first century New Testament language relevant to a contemporary world come of age. Jesus did not give us a blueprint for identifying God and his work or for relevant human involvement in the world. And family, that's a struggle of a lot of folk, man. Honestly. So many people attempt to make first century New Testament language relevant to today. Meaning they try to take what is plainly written in the text in the New Testament scripture and just apply it without giving any context. And I'm not talking about context just with reading five verses above and five verses below a particular scripture to get an understanding. Even though that is very useful, I'm talking about actual hermeneutics breaking down the cultural context of not only the writer, but the people taking into account the time, taking into account the laws and ways of the land before attempting to apply that particular scripture to their life. And it's a struggle. And since this is not technically or normally one of the things that is taught within churches, how to actually study and read scripture effectively, because you have, frankly, a lot of illiterate behind preachers and pastors out there, a lot of unlearned, uneducated, non-seminary, non-Bible school going preachers and pastors out there who are passing out horrible hermeneutics, man. And the text continues. But this is the never-ending task of theology and the church. The real temptation is to identify our own interest with God's and thus any that he is active in those activities which best serve our purposes. Karl Barth pointed out this danger in convincing in a convincing way in his Romans commentary. But we must speak of God and his works as if he intended, as if we intended to join him. Excuse me for that. Our chief difficulty in coping with the relationship between black power and Christian love arises from the the theological failure to interpret the New Testament message of salvation in such a way that it will have meaning for oppressed blacks in America. We still use, for the most part, traditional religious language, which really was created for a different age and to a large degree for a Western white society. The New Testament message of God's love to man is still embedded in thought forms totally alien to blacks whose life experiences are unique to themselves. The message is presented to blacks as if they shared the white cultural tradition. We still talk of salvation in white terms, love with a Western perspective, and thus never ask the question, what are the theological implications of God's love for a black man in America? Therefore, when we are confronted with blacks with a new sense of themselves, alien to the Western definition of the black man, and to some degree even alien to Western view of humanity, our language seems to fail as an attempt is made to fit him in. Literally, we try to squeeze Jesus in. 
somehow, some way into our current culture without taking into consideration the culture which he was born, lived, died, and was resurrected in. And the text reads, I'm not suggesting that the New Testament language and its theological interpretation in the history of Western Christianity are no longer useful for black people in America. Rather, I am saying that there is a real need for a radical approach which takes the suffering of black people seriously. Without this new way of doing theology, from the perspective of black enslavement, there will always be this barrier between black power and Christian love. This can be illustrated in the New Testament understanding of God's love for man and man's love for God and his neighbor. According to the New Testament, man's love for God for his neighbor is grounded in God's love for man, which most theologians designated as agape. God's agape to man is spontaneous and creative, the starting point of God-man relationship. It is spontaneous in that there is no worth in man from God's perspective which accounts for God's love. The sole reason for God's love is found in his loving character. As Niren says, just by the fact that it, God's love seeks sinners who do not deserve it and can lay no claim to it, it manifests most clearly its spontaneous and unmotivated nature. God's love is creative because God does not love that which is already worth worthy of love, but on the contrary, that which in and of itself has no worth acquires worth just by becoming the object of God's love. Thus, while all men are worthless apart from God's love, since God's love is bestowed upon all, all are worthy simply because God's loved them. Herein lies a religious foundation for the equality of men. To suggest that some are worthy and some are not, or that some are more equal than others, would mean that man has a worth independent of God or that God's love is more creative in some than others. God's love is the initiator of the God-man fellowship in that there is no way from man to love God independent. Because of God's act of love to man, man can now have fellowship with him. This is certainly demonstrated in God's election of Israel and his becoming man in Jesus Christ. In fact, everything that Christians mean by God's love is expressed in the Christ event. John 3.16, Romans 5 and 8. It is the man, Jesus, who reveals God's love by what he says, does, and is. Like God's righteousness, his love is expressed in terms of his activity to and for man which is the very basis of man's response to God and his neighbor. This activity of divine agape love cannot be easily separated from God's righteousness. Indeed, they must be highly, I'm sorry, indeed, they must be held tightly together. Love prevents righteousness from being legalistic, and righteousness keeps love from being sentimental. Both express God's desire for man when man will not be for himself. Love means that God rights the wrongs of humanity because they are inconsistent with his purpose for man. Righteousness means that God cannot turn his back on evil, that he cannot pretend that wrong is right. Love means that he acts for man's own best interest, that man's welfare is God's primary concern, 
and so does righteousness. This leads us to the biblical understanding of man's love for God and for his neighbor. Jesus summed up man's obligation to God and neighbor in the form of a double commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments demand, depend all the law and the prophets. Matthew 22, 34-40. For a man to love God means that the Christ event has gripped him so that he behaves as if Christ is at the core of his being. Man's love for God means that because of God's prior activity of love through Christ, he now is willing to become a slave. Luke 27, 7. Man. <laughs> this leads us to the second commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. To love the neighbor means that we seek to meet his needs. It means being prepared to confront the neighbor as a thou and doing what is necessary because he is who he is, a creature of God. And I always get confused, man, and, and, and frustrated when I hear Christians, particularly, yeah, Christians in general, uh, speak so negatively of non-Christians who are fighting white supremacy. I find it absolutely fascinating, man, to hear some of the language used. It's fascinating that they ignore that second commandment. For God to love the black man means that God has made him somebody. The black man does not need to hate himself because he is not white. He should feel no need to become like others. His blackness, which society despises, is a special creation of God himself. He has worth because God imparts value through loving it. It means that God has bestowed on him a new image of himself so that he can now become what he in fact is. Through God's love, the black man is given the power to become, the power to make others recognize him. Because God is a power of majestic, I'm sorry, because God is a God of power, of majesty and of might, to love man means that he wills that the black man reflect an immediate of life, his power, his majesty, and his might. For the black man to respond to God's love and faith means that he accepts as truth the new image of himself revealed in Jesus Christ. He now knows that the definition of himself, defined it by white society, is inconsistent with the newly found image disclosed in Christ. In a world which has taught blacks to hate themselves, the new black man does not transcend blackness, but accepts it, loves it as a gift of the creator. For he knows that until he accepts himself as a being of God, in all of his physical blackness, he can love neither God nor neighbor. This may be what one black power advocate meant when he said, until blacks develop themselves, they can do nothing for humanity. And another who said, 
Black power does not teach hatred. It teaches love. But it teaches us that love, like charity, must begin at home. That it must begin with ourselves, our beautiful black selves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> wow. I don't know about you, family. First, that concludes our reading for the night, man. We will continue uh, chapter two, the gospel of Jesus, black people and black power. But I don't know about you when I'm reading this book. First off, this I've read this book more than once. It's filled with highlights and pen marks, and I even got crayon on a page or two. <laughs> but I know it, 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 some of the stuff that I hear, I got to pause and read it again, read it again read it again and read it again not because i don't necessarily understand it but i want to understand it so well that it grasps and hooks and buries the, that truth inside my very being that's one of the importance of making sure that i didn't give too long a segments or too long episodes 30 to 35 minutes man is perfect it gives you enough to, 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 to chew on. It gives you enough to chew on. Again, man, this is your boy Elgin Bailey with another episode of the Page Turners, continuing our book study of Black Theology and Black Power by the late, great Dr. James H. Cohn. Till next time, man. Take care, and I'm praying for you sincerely. I'm out.